Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Lisa Pugliese-Lacroix. Lisa is a speech and language pathologist, a former collegiate tennis player, and the founder and CEO of Love Serving Autism, a nonprofit organization that provides specialized therapeutic tennis instruction for individuals with autism. Love Serving Autism's mission is to expand life skills, increase community inclusion, and promote independence of individuals on the spectrum. In this conversation, we discuss how Lisa fuses tennis and speech therapy, benefits of playing tennis for autistic individuals, strategies and accommodations to help her students succeed, what she's learned about the autistic population from teaching tennis, adapting services online due to the pandemic, and advice for parents interested in tennis for their autistic children. In this episode, discover what's possible when skills are transferred off the court. For more information about Lisa and her work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Lisa Pugliese-Lacroix. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Rachel, for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? My name is Lisa Pugliese-Lacroix. I live in Delray Beach, Florida, and I'm the founder of Love Serving Autism. Wonderful. So how did you begin working with the autistic population? 18 years ago, I started my first job as a speech and language therapist. And my very first job interview was in an autism unit at a public school here in South Florida. And that began my journey working with children with autism. 18 years later, I'm still in the field as a speech and language therapist. So really, it was uh, kind of brought to me, the principal said to me, you know, I know this job interview is for a speech and language therapist. And back then with autism, you know, it was a little bit different. There was less information about it. And I didn't really have any training in graduate school about autism. So uh, he was a little hesitant on, you know, showing me the classroom. And he said, I don't know if you're going to like this, if this is for you. But I walked in and just immediately fell in love with what I saw on the kids and how unique they were. So I walked back to the principal's office and I said, you know, yes, I, I would love this job opportunity. And, and I think he was happy, <laughs> happy to hear this. So I stayed there for 10 years and then I transitioned to a charter school for autism, the Palm Beach School for Autism. They have around 350 children with autism here and I worked there for five years. So that's kind of like my speech and language. I'm currently working actually with progressive pediatric therapy part-time doing telehealth since COVID. Okay, got it. And how about your background in tennis? When did you start playing? I started tennis at the age of five. I was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. 
And I had the opportunity of taking a tennis lesson when I was five years old. And the tennis coach afterwards spoke to my parents and said, you know, your daughter has really good hand-eye coordination. I think this may be a good sport for her. And at the time I was playing soccer and piano as, you know, a child, you do everything. And I didn't realize like how much I would end up, you know, playing tennis. So I, I did start in Tennessee and um, became competitive, I'd say around 10 years old in tournaments. And we moved to Florida when I was 14 from my dad's job. So I continued to play Florida tennis juniors. My parents were nervous about us moving to Florida because Florida tennis is very competitive. It's like the top in the United States compared to like other states. Very competitive here. Um, the good news is that I it helped my game. And um, so I, I ended up being number one in the state for, you know, a couple of years in a row and also played national tournaments. I think my highest ranking was like number two in the nation wow. when I was in 16s and 18s. So that tennis became my life. Like that was it. I went to school, trained afterwards. I didn't have much of a social life and ended up playing in college. I started at Duke University and I played a year there and, and transferred over to University of Florida. I wanted to be closer to home and played at University of Florida for three years and graduated. And um, most of our teammates played on the tour. We did win the national championship my senior year, so it was pretty awesome. I'm still friends with all the team, and we ended up playing each other on the tour a little bit, but I, I had a back injury, hmm. so that's kind of where my life, I had to find like the next step on, do I want to continue to play after surgery, or do I want to find like a new career path? Mm -hmm. So you had this background in tennis growing up, playing your whole life pretty much, and then you decided to change careers and focus on speech and language pathology. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So what inspired you to fuse the two and eventually develop Love Serving Autism? Well, initially it felt so nice to help others. You know, when you're an athlete at that level, it's all about yourself and you focus on your training needs and you usually have a team of people who help you and you travel and, and you're really not focusing on other people. And when I became a speech and language therapist, I thought, how great is this? I could stop focusing so much on my needs and I can help others. And I really always like to help people in general and make a difference. So I really didn't touch a tennis racket for, I'd say, eight to 10 years. I just here and there, but I really didn't. I focused on my new career. I love the identity of being someone different for a while. Even though I knew I had a gift with tennis, I really didn't think about how to connect them. And I had read an article in a tennis magazine about a national nonprofit that started in Boston, I believe in 2011. I reached out to them and I said, you know, oh, you teach tennis for children with autism. We have nothing in Florida. And the founder said, oh, can you help me develop programs in Florida? It's called Acing Autism. So I said, well, you know, that sounds great. I could get back into tennis for a different purpose. So he flew from California they moved their headquarters there to Florida and we started opening programs together. And I did that for about six years, just volunteering my time because it was such a passion of mine in addition to being a speech and language pathologist. And anyway, fast forward, I recognize six years into it, I have a new vision of focusing more on the clinical piece of the tennis, integrating the speech and occupational, physical and behavioral therapists in really working on more of the therapeutic model. 
So I did reach out to the founder. I said, this has been a wonderful experience, but I think it's time for me to start something completely on my own. And so I did apply as a nonprofit, just picked a name, applied to the IRS and started a 501c3. And the first program was in 2017 at the school where I was working. Oh, right. So that's how Love Serving Autism started. (laughs) Yeah. And what is your mission now? Our mission now is really to provide, you know, specialized, uh, multidisciplinary, therapeutic instruction to children and adults on the spectrum. So the tennis court is a therapy space. So instead of a child going to, which is traditional therapy, you know, you receive speech in a school setting or in a clinic or in an office or outpatient. Now they can receive it on the tennis court. We're still honestly putting all of that together now. Funding is a huge challenge during COVID. A lot of the grants are super competitive, but uh, putting the whole clinical component together is our next step. Yeah, great. Because then you could potentially bill to insurance companies, right? Correct. So we are now applying to, we're getting credential with different insurance companies here in Florida so that, you know, children can go to tennis and use their insurance and tennis is just another form of therapy. We would like eventually to have an online portal. We don't have one yet for therapists to track data. So that's something we really would like to work on as well so that everything is, you know, HIPAA compliant in one safe place. And we can look at the children's IEPs and and compare like their academic goals to what we're doing on the tennis court and help help the skills generalize. I think that's huge for children and adults on the spectrum. You know, they learn obviously skills in certain settings and how do they carry over. Mm -hmm. And we do teach adults as well. We're doing our best to start building more adult programs since the children, you know, they grow up at some point to become adults. So it's important we offer the instruction to both. Yeah. Could you give some examples of some goals that you might work on to generalize into different environments? An example from my speech and language therapy background would be, for instance, on the tennis court, we have such a wide range of children from very verbal and social, maybe they have Asperger's syndrome and they need help with their social skills versus a child who is completely nonverbal and they don't really have a voice, right? So, you know, another goal of ours in the future is to really focus on training volunteers and coaches on how to facilitate language skills and really how to help the children initiate language. Because when you're in tennis, you know, you toss a ball to a child, they hit a volley. You could do that without sound or speech. You just toss it, they hit a volley, right? But for us, why not, you know, hold the ball and and the coach or volunteer would say, ready, set, and the child has to say, go. Mm -hmm. So they have to initiate, whether it's verbal or using an eye, you know, their device, communication device, or whether they have a picture exchange, like a visual. So just to stop in those moments and really work on, you know, how do we increase language skills on the tennis court? And then for a parent, parents, a lot of times attend our classes, which is great. So they can see what's going on and then they can work on those same skills at home. A lot of the children I see, especially with the volunteers, everything's done for them. Oh, you know, they're so cute. Let me give them a racket. Let me give them a ball. And they forget, oh, the child can request to get a ball, Mm -hmm. a request to get a racket, or they can comment, you know, I love tennis or I don't like this game, but we have to provide those opportunities for them. Yeah, right. 
I and also wanted to tell you we do have a new I formed a an SLP advisory committee now. So we meet once a month on Zoom and these are speech and language therapists from across the country who are interested in the organization. And they discussed with me a month ago about really forming like creating some training videos for engaging, you know, the coaches and the volunteers so that they learn more about how to increase language skills, like expressive language skills and all that on the tennis court. So that's something that we'll be working on, hopefully in the near future. <laughs> oh, that's great. So logistically, how would that work if a child has an AAC device with them, which, you know, for people who don't know, it could be a tablet. And sometimes it's on a strap that they might carry on their shoulder or around their neck or something. How does that work if they're playing tennis? That is a wonderful question. And we're still piloting different devices to see. Sometimes the children will have iPod touches they wear around their necks that are portable and they wear them to school. They can wear them to tennis. They're a lot smaller, but we did test the whole iPad concept and putting it on a stand. And it was a little challenging because by the time they wanted to request something or comment, they had to walk over and press the button and come back, you know, and mm. it, you kind of miss those opportunities. So right now there's a company, PRC Saltillo, which they do in Boardmaker, they do create a lot of communication devices and we're actually piloting different devices now with the kids. Um, they donated a few apps to us. So it is not easy, obviously, to play tennis and hold a device at the same time. But they are, like you said, they have straps and they have portable, they have ways to wear the devices, even if they wear, like nowadays, you know, you have the Apple watches and you have, so they do have communication devices that you can wear around your wrist mm -hmm. and they can be programmed. So there are a few options for us. We, we do have a banner at tennis that we started printing in January that we hang on the fences at tennis and it has all the picture icons. It has a visual schedule. It has a communication sentence builder board so that the children can walk over and request like, I want a water break. So we have vocabulary. It has an emotions board. So we did our best to actually hang the visuals so they could walk over and select as well. So it's more like a low tech option mm -hmm. versus the device. So it's something that we're still working on. Right, right. Okay. What are the benefits of playing tennis for individuals with autism? And I guess I'm curious, how do these benefits differ from playing basketball, for example? I honestly, with our organization, we're starting with tennis, but I think that we could expand to multiple sports because what, what they're learning in tennis can carry over. Um, the skills they're learning, the hand-eye coordination, the fitness, the balance, you know, the learning to control the power, like a lot of the kids, when they get on the court, they don't know how to control the ball. So it helps with their mo motor planning skills, uh, coordinating, you know, their movements. Some of the kids hit the ball way too hard and it like flies out of the court and we have to teach them. Okay. You have to hit it within these lines. They don't realize how strong they are. Mm. And some of the children need help with hitting the ball more powerfully and really feeling like how the ball feels on their racket. So I think tennis is repetitive. Obviously, when I was young, I used to play on a backboard. My parents painted a garage with a line, and I loved it. I used to go there for hours every day and just play tennis in the garage. Myself, I loved it. So I think for them, you know, it's repetitive and it's very visual and it's social. A lot of a lot of the kids come out. You know, if we have ten children, up to ten children in a class per hour, they get to see their friends. They get to meet new people. 
and it increases, you know, their ability to, uh, you know, uh, improve their social skills too. So I think there are so many benefits and even it benefits the parents too, because it's a support network for them and they don't feel isolated. You know, they're raising a child with autism and maybe they don't know anyone in the community or they don't really know where they're accepted. They don't want to take their child somewhere where they might feel they're being judged. But when they come to tennis, their child can have a moment and they're still, you know, it's okay. You're here with everyone else. And it's like more of an unconditional, like loving, you know, family, yeah, <laughs> a family unit. So I, I think there are multiple benefits. One more thing, it also provides a structured routine so that the children know, okay, every Saturday at 8 a.m. I'm going to tennis and they'll go rain or shine. <laughs> uh, as you know, children with autism like their routine. So. Yeah, yeah. Just curious, that motion of swinging the racket, can this movement be generalized to something else in everyday life? Like, you know, with music therapy, holding a drumstick can be generalized to holding a pencil or holding a fork. And I'm just wondering about this motion with the racket. Well, there's all, there's many different, you know, you have your volleys, which are up here doing this. You have your ground strokes, which are a little bit like, I don't know if you could see me, but you know, you swing from low to high. Sorry, Lisa, for the people who aren't going to watch the video, could you just describe the volley, like what you're doing with your hand? Sure. Um, so the volley is when you hit the ball in the air, the ball does not bounce. So you hold your racket up and it's like you're giving someone a high five. So it's similar. It's we simulate, we, we do practice high fives mm -hmm. before a lot of times we put a racket in their hand because they don't realize when you hit a volley, like if you watch the U S open or Wimbledon on tennis, the professionals are not doing a lot of crazy swinging, right? They're just taking their racket and using the force of the ball and hitting it straight like a high five. So it's interesting because the children a lot of times think it's baseball or they want to get a ball racket and just swing it, you know, so hard. And we have to teach them how to regulate their body. So I'd say, I don't know if it generalizes to a specific motion. I mean, definitely high five, we practice that. But also I think it helps them learn more about the strength of their body and it builds like mu muscle control. Mm-hmm. So those are at the net. Volleys are at the net when you don't let the ball bounce. When you back up all the way, like on a tennis court to the baseline on a big court, the ball bounces. Now you swing from low to high. You go all the way over your body, sort of like golf. Yeah. And those are forehands and backhands. And, and I think that it's another great tool for motor planning because a lot of the children, we have to time it. We have to work on like telling them when the ball bounces and when they can hit it because they... Sometimes they swing before or after and they don't know how to time the ball to hit the ball. So a lot of times the coach will say bounce and the child has to say hit, bounce, hit, bounce, hit. So they get the timing of it. So I think there's a lot of purposes, I think, for learning the, the strokes and the skills. I don't know, like vocational, like what you can learn maybe from doing that, but motion. I know when I sweep, <laughs> I, when I sweep and clean the house, I do, I use like my forehand. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> like I clean my house, like literally like I'm playing tennis. It's really, I didn't know I did that until my husband was like, how are you, look at how you're sweeping. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I, but I do, uh, I think tennis is great, you know, to build muscle strength and control. And, and again, for them to learn like where their body is in space, right? Like proprioception. It's, it's sometimes, sometimes they're just, they don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
so that the, when you hit the tennis ball and it's like, I guess it's kinesthetic, right? So when they hit the ball, it can regulate their system. And I think that's something they love to hit volleys over and over and over again, because I think it kind of calms their, their nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, it is interesting, but, yeah. but I, you know, one of our goals, I mean, I know that autism, you know, exists around the world and, you know, I know that eventually we're expanding out of Florida now and eventually, you know, we're going into a few different states. So I think that, you know, the goal of our organization is to really focus on the therapies and that whatever we teach on the tennis court, whether it's in Florida or New York or Pennsylvania, wherever it, it generalizes into the community and the school and the home settings and even holding a tennis racket, you know, how do you hold a tennis racket? It's like, how do you hold a pencil? You know, it, it, it all can translate, but as long as the parents understand the bigger purpose, I think that's, which they're getting, you know, yeah. but I think that's something we, you know, we're continuing to develop. So. Great. What strategies have you found helpful when teaching tennis to autistic children? Like you've mentioned the visual schedule, which can help with setting up a structure for them. What are some other strategies? Yes. So if you attended one of our classes and, and currently, you know, we're in Florida, we, we did expand to Massachusetts and excitingly, we're, we're expanding to a few more states in the next six months. So there's a definite need for the program. There's a pathway. So the children start with like a red ball, which is bigger and pressureless, and it's almost like errorless learning. So it's easier for them to hit the ball. And once they advance from the red ball, which I'd say 80% of our participants stay there for, you know, up to one, two, three years, if, if some stay are currently still there, and we're in year five now, they progress to orange ball, which is a little smaller and faster. And then you go from orange to green and green to yellow. So there's a whole progression of tennis balls and they get smaller and faster. So that's one modification. That's what the United States Tennis Association uses for children who are typical and now adaptive tennis too. So there's a pathway. And in addition to the tennis balls, we use a lot of targets and bright colors. Like we have um, poly spots, which are little dots that you stand on, like you see in gym class. So every child knows where to stand at all times, whether they're stretching, whether they're at the net hitting volleys, they know where they are in space because you know, it's not easy for them sometimes to follow directions and know where exactly to stand. So we use a lot of poly spots and visuals and targets and the younger children use mini nets so that, you know, it's a little smaller and easier for them with the smaller rackets. So the equipment's modified. And I'd say what we do on the court is a little more modified. We, we use a smaller court space, so it's easier for them to track the ball. Mm -hmm. But we do have children who have advanced through the red, orange, and green, which is amazing. We have around, I'd say, seven participants now who are learning to compete and keep score and serve and return and rally. They're a little older, so they did advance through the pathway. And I think it just demonstrates the fact that it's possible, but it, it, it's not overnight. It just doesn't, it's not quick. But just through repetition and the, we do weekly classes, six-week sessions, like five, six times a year through all their locations. So I think the more tennis they have, obviously, the more they improve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What have you learned about the autistic population from teaching tennis that you didn't know when you were just an SLP? 
Great question. I feel I've learned that they're capable of so much more, I think, than people realize. You know, just because you have autism doesn't mean that you are not able to play sports or that you won't fall in love with a sport. For instance, we went to the U.S. Open in New York in 2019. We were invited to bring 21 children. So they flew from Palm Beach, Florida to New York. And I thought, oh, wow, I'm taking a big risk because most of these children had never flown in an airplane. I have no idea, you know, when they get there to the U.S. Open, it's a massive, obviously, tennis facility. We're on one of the stadium courts. Like, how will they respond? And it was the most incredible experience because the parents took like videos of their child traveling on the planes and getting in the hotel and it was all new routines. And they were exposed to so many new environments and they stepped on the tennis court and it was only a 10 minute experience for them, but they did incredibly well. And parents are still like, when are we going again? Can we go again? (laughs) You know, is COVID finished because we want to go again. So I think that it opened my eyes to the reality of, I guess Temple Grandin always says, and when she speaks about exposing children to new activities, new things, to not limit them. Some of the children have tennis birthday parties now, you know, Mm -hmm. at their house. And they maybe never would have done that had they not had the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Right. So as an SLP, you know, a lot of times we're trained in a traditional environment. And a lot of the, even the ones I work with now, oh, I don't know if I could come out to tennis. I don't even know how to hit a tennis ball. And, you know, I'll say, well, that's okay. You don't have to play tennis to come and work with the kids. You know, you're helping them work on communication or holding a racket for the occupational therapist, whatever it is, they don't need that level of tennis experience to be a part of our program. So I think it's also kind of opened the minds of some therapists here locally as well of, oh, wow, there's more to our job than working in certain, you know, the traditional settings. Yeah, yeah. So could you describe a little bit more the model and how it works on the court? You have your coaches, like the tennis coaches that are working, is it one-on-one? And then how do you incorporate that multidisciplinary approach? We typically have one coach per court. So let's just say we're in a certain city, we're at a public park, we have one tennis court, we have one coach. Let's just say they're up to 10 children. That's That's our max pretty much on the court. And before COVID, our numbers were pretty high. So we were around 10 for most locations. We're still rebuilding everything now as parents feel more comfortable going back out. I'd have to say our staff, our ratio would be maybe for for the 10 children, four to five volunteers on the court. Sometimes they're high school, sometimes they're college students getting community service credits. We do encourage children who require additional services. For instance, if they potentially have ABA therapy or if they have a private therapist who works with them, we do encourage the therapist to join the tennis program with them to work one-on-one. We can't always guarantee a one-on-one person for every child because they're all volunteering their time. So sometimes a parent will bring like a you know an RBT, registered behavior therapist, to the program, or they'll bring a sibling. Sometimes siblings come out and they'll model for their brother or sister, which is great. I love that too. As far as the therapists, as like I said, we're still, we're actually piloting a camp next week. It's our first multidisciplinary camp. So it's Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And basically the speech and occupational, um, and ABA therapists will go on the tennis court and kind of like model for the children, you know, what what's expected of them. And we'll record data throughout the week to see how the children are progressing. 
I think that the bigger model would be once we're credentialed with insurance companies, maybe a child could have his own speech therapist or his own, you know, hey, I'd like to have OT during tennis today or this week, you know, and then we can call, they could get an OT to come out and work individually with that child. So right now it's more of like a group setting, Mm -hmm. but eventually it'd be great to have individual, you know, working individually with the children. Yeah. Or like a hybrid so that they can still get those social skills. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you share a success story related to one of your students? Oh, yes. We have a few. May I say more than one? Oh, of course. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So one that always sticks out in my mind because it's a little bit unique is we started the tennis program at the Palmer School for Autism I told you about in South Florida, which is a big charter school. And one of the students is nonverbal, you know, meaning there's really no speech due to like apraxia, speech apraxia. Like he wasn't, he's not able to articulate at all. And so he got to tennis and I knew he was happy, but he wasn't able to really tell us how he felt. And you never know how much the children enjoy the program at times because they can't really, you know, if they don't have the speech to tell you, this is so much fun. I really love this. Even some children don't even care to use their devices after school. They'll like tuck them in their backpack, you know? So his mom reported that he would bring his tennis racket to his room every evening and put it right by his bed. And the mom would try to move it and put it back downstairs and he would shake his head. No, because I think tennis became part of his routine. And it made me so happy. This is just one story. It made me so happy to hear like it meant that much to him because in my mind, I didn't know if he really enjoyed tennis. He wasn't able to tell us. Mm -hmm. And he's not really an athletic type of child. You know, he just you know, you just wouldn't know. So I do miss him. We had to shut all of our school programming due to COVID in 2020. So we hope to reopen the program again in the fall at that one location. Mm -hmm. Another story, a success story would be a child who he has some language. He has more of an echolalia. So he likes to repeat words and phrases, very smart. And I'd say he's in middle school now. And His mom said, you wouldn't believe what my son's doing. He's bringing the tennis balls home after class and he's hitting on the wall at our house. And they had to board the windows because he almost broke one of the windows one day. And the funny thing is, is like the children we teach are perfectionists, a lot of them. So if they miss a tennis ball, they have to go find that exact ball. Hmm. So if he hit a tennis ball over the roof of the house, he'd have to go run around and get it or bring it back. And he collected all the balls in a basket and brought them to his room, which I saw. So, you know, like I said, they don't always express themselves the way we would and say, oh my gosh, I had so much fun today. I want to play this again tomorrow. But the parents have a lot of stories, you know, and they typically like to share them with us. And there's one more. Yeah. (laughs) One of the children who went to the U.S. Open, I think his dad had said he lost around 45 pounds playing tennis in our program in a year. Because he was a video gamer and he was a teenager and they couldn't get him to go outside and do really any sports after school. And he knew me. So he said, okay, I'm going to sign up. You know, I'll go to tennis if Miss Lisa's there at at the school. And he ended up going to the U.S. Open with us in New York. So that's another success story, I think, where his parents were like, wow, I can't believe he actually enjoys this sport. But one of the challenges of the organization is expansion. And you know, I'm now training coaches. It was initially it was me. I was the coach at, at most of the programs. And now that we've expanded, we have around 17, I think, locations in Florida. 
now and we're still growing that I have to train the coaches and it's not always Miss Lisa. So the children are learning. They're showing up at classes and saying, well, that's, she's different. That's not the same person (laughs) and learning to adapt and become flexible with their thinking Mm -hmm. and learn, okay, it's okay to have a new coach and it's okay. You know, she may do it differently, but it's something that the the children are adjusting to. Yeah. So, you know, being in the field for 18 years now, why are you passionate about the autistic population? Another great question. I really uh, was drawn to autism. Obviously, in my first job interview, I think that I understand the children at a certain level, maybe because I'm in the industry, also because I was quite introverted growing up. I'm much different now, I think, but I was very quiet and tennis was sort of like my voice. I didn't feel comfortable in social settings. I didn't feel comfortable like at parties. I was never that person, but I love to hit a tennis ball. So I think that I understand how awkward and uncomfortable they may feel, you know, in social settings or maybe going to tennis classes and I can help them obviously find their voice through tennis and maybe this can be something they enjoy doing. And they're pure, you know, most of the children, adults I meet, they're all like so kind. And I told my husband, who's a tennis pro here in South Florida at a big country club, I said, I'd much rather teach tennis to children and adults on the spectrum than I would at a country club because... (laughs) They appreciate it. They enjoy it. The families are involved and you get to celebrate the small successes. It's not, there's not a level of entitlement and I, I deserve this, you know, all that. It's just, it's just different. And I feel more comfortable in that setting. So I did work briefly at a country club a year ago. So I was <laughs> and I, I taught my tennis classes, but I really missed you know, I decided to go back to what I'm doing now, but um, I'm still not full time yet with the organization because I, obviously we're still working on our funding and fundraising and connecting with foundations to help us, which takes some time. Yes. Well, you are already impacting so many families. Thank so, you. Yeah. The statistics are so different now versus 18 years ago when I was in grad school or graduated and I think with one in 54, I believe, you know, now it's, uh, I try to train coaches now in the industry throughout the U.S. and actually worldwide because they may not teach a program like mine, right? But they may meet a child in their after-school tennis program at a facility who's on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I do receive emails, I'd say at least once a week from pros around the country and even internationally of, oh, I heard about what you're doing and I need some advice. And this child's doing this, and I don't know what to say to the parent. And how do I communicate with the child? And it's a little bit disruptive for my class, but I want, you know, what do I do? And so nowadays with the numbers so high, the tennis coaches and pros and directors are meeting more children on the spectrum. Yeah. It's great that those families are exposing their kids to tennis. So that's a good sign. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just wish a little bit that there was more open communication I don't know how often parents discuss the diagnosis with the coaches. Hmm. And I don't think it's the coach's role to ask about that. But I think it's important the coaches. What I recommend usually is a coach calls the parent and says, hey, you know, I love having your child in my class and they're doing so well in these areas. And can you help me with some of these other areas? And, and hopefully that can open 
the communication to, oh yeah, well, that's what they do in school and they get accommodations or they have a 504 plan, whatever it is, that they get extra support too. Mm-hmm. Because you don't want to ever assume a child is diagnosed with autism. You, you just don't. But it's also important that the parents are communicating with the coaches about how to properly support their child. Yes, exactly. It's all in the best interest of the student. Absolutely. So Lisa, have you guys had to adapt your services due to the pandemic? You said that, you know, some families are now getting more comfortable with being out in public, but what have you done to support these kids over the last year? In March, let's say mid-March, we postponed our in-person programming and then realized, wow, you know, the whole world was doing that as well. So I thought, well, we can't just stop our programs. So we transitioned to virtual tennis. And what I did was I took the lesson plan from in-person classes to my house and decided, well, we can log into Zoom and I can invite the families and we can play tennis from home. And we have, um, we've been playing tennis from home for, let's see, uh, 17 months now almost. <laughs> wow. How does that work? Do the kids need to have their own court at home too? No. So they're logging in from inside their houses or they could be out on a patio or something like outside. I'm teaching from the living room. So, so basically we log in, we do a little bit of greeting, social skills. We do a first thin board. Like I'll call on a student and say, okay, first tennis, then what are you going to do next? And then we do our stretching. So basically I'm modeling on the computer, whatever they're supposed to do as a coach. And we do stretches and we do fitness exercises where we do like our warm up, you know, jumping jacks, whatever, all the exercises, sit-ups, push-ups, everything. And then we go into hand-eye coordination. So the tennis children usually are adults to log in. They usually have a racket. If they don't have a racket and a ball, I've seen them use like a dustpan, anything that they can hold to balance an object. And we work on a lot of hand-eye coordination, like dribbling. We'll have a whole set of exercises we do. And then after hand-eye coordination, we go into actually playing tennis. So you're not really, you don't have an opponent, but you have a wall in your house. So we sometimes take a ball and just practice hitting back and forth on a wall. Or if they have a parent at the house or a sibling, they can hit back and forth to each other. So it's teaching them how to regulate, you know, control their power inside the house. And it's about an hour class. And we even did a glow in the dark event a year ago uh, during COVID. The children all like bought black lights and we did it in the evening and everything lit up and we had music and they loved it. So we've had to be creative. Oh, that sounds fun. Like creative. I'd say now, you know, almost going into 17 months from the virtual start, start of virtual tennis, our numbers are much lower logging in because I think, you know, most of our in-person programs are back. But I think it was a wonderful platform for us so that we can continue our services. Yeah, exactly. And keep kids active at home when they might not otherwise be. Yes. And we did partner with an organization in Canada called ProSet Autism. And the founder reached out and said, you know, we're shutting down in Canada. Can you help work with us? Whatever. So they started logging in. So the founder himself and myself were the coaches for a few months. So we had a mix of Canadians and Floridians, and then we had some from New York log in. And so it was like such, it's been such a mix, but it it, like, again, it gave them another opportunity and it it was social engagement too, so that they felt connected. So I think it was, uh, it worked, Mm -hmm. Um, but I I feel in-person tennis is more 
reality, maybe, you know, they actually feel the tennis ball in the racket. So I'm encouraging August 7th actually is our final virtual for, for the time being since school starts here. And we're going to try to get everyone back into in-person classes. And if we need to return to virtual, we know it's there. So we can. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right, Lisa, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to parents who are not sure if tennis would be right for their child? Well, again, having experienced meeting families who were very hesitant about bringing their child to tennis for multiple reasons. Um, one could be routine, change in routine, right? It could be my child doesn't play sports. They don't really do anything but hang out at home or play video games. We encourage them to try you know, because you don't want to limit your child. You want them to reach their potential. And as the organization grows, I see new opportunities every day of like what we can do. And I'm starting to talk more about the therapy piece of it versus it's just tennis. So if, if a parent understands that when they come to tennis, it's a therapy and they're working on so many skills, whether it's speech or hand-eye coordination or motor planning skills or behavior, they'll understand, oh, this is like taking my child to a therapy session. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's like something we're working on. Once we build all the team of therapists at all our locations, I think they'll understand. They'll feel maybe a little bit more comfortable with the fact that, okay, it's not just tennis. It, tennis is great, but it's a bit more than that. So I was lucky here in South Florida because I've been in an SLP for 18 years. So I knew a lot of the families and they knew me and trusted me enough to enroll their child. And I think that helped. And once they enrolled their child, then other parents will say, oh, that sounds great. I'll try that. You know, so I think it's somewhat word of mouth as well. Mm -hmm. So it just takes time. Um, there are some parents who haven't, to this day, still haven't tried it. Because I think they don't know. They're unsure. They're not, they don't know if they can predict their child's reaction to it. Mm. And how they would handle going to tennis if it's not something they're passionate about. And it could take a couple sessions for them to feel like excited about it or to feel, especially if you're like five years old, you know, that's the starting age pretty much where we teach. We have four and a half to five year olds and they don't know, you know, what tennis is. We have social stories, but, you know, it's still, they have to be there to experience it and, and, it could take a few sessions of classes before they feel like they understand what's expected of them. So I guess I would just say that, you know, you have to give it a try. You never know what your child's capable of and, and to think about it as another thera therapeutic opportunity. Great. Okay, Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel, uh, for inviting me. And, um, I, I really enjoyed this, uh, today and, um, you know, we do have a website, loveservingautism.org. We have social media pages. We have, you know, the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We have a YouTube channel. So if anyone ever wants to go and check out some of our virtual tennis or in-person tennis classes, we do have videos on the Love Serving Autism channel on YouTube as well. Great. And we'll put all those links in our show notes. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Lisa has creatively combined both of her passions to serve individuals and their families. Children are not only given a chance to develop their tennis skills in a supportive environment, they're also able to transfer these skills off the court and into their community. If, like Lisa, 
you're a professional working in the field of autism education or a self-advocate wanting to share your life experiences, our Skill Corps volunteer program is an opportunity you don't want to miss. The Global Autism Project provides sustainable clinical, administrative, and leadership training to autism centers seeking guidance. As a Skill Corps member, you can travel to our partner sites around the world and work directly with their local teachers and therapists. If you'd like to learn more about our Skill Corps program, check out episodes 4, 17, 53, and 66, featuring Skill Corps volunteers that have been to our partner sites in India, the Netherlands, Indonesia, Dominican Republic, and Kenya, to name a few. Listen to them talk about their transformative experiences and see what Skill Corps can offer you. Just a reminder, we're currently accepting applications for our Skill Corps volunteer program to travel in 2022. Begin your journey today at globalautismproject.org forward slash skillcore. That's S-K-I-L-L-C-O-R-P-S. As a listener of our show, take advantage of the coupon code to waive the application fee. It's Autism Podcast with no space in all caps. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.